hello, welcome to the Mental Health Bar with me, Chris PG. Uh, I am joined this week by uh, the wonderful Phoebe Webb, who you can see to my right here, podcaster and writer. Um, we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. We've been having a nice little chat beforehand. We're very we're quite similar people. We've discovered we're creative and and have a number of different things that we've we've got with, with in our brains. Um, but more specifically, we're going to be talking about eating disorders this week, which is not a topic I've covered before. Phoebe, I, I know that you, you, um, you. When we, when I did this, I obviously put out an email saying, uh, I put out a tweet saying, "Hey, um, I'd like people who are, are coping with mental health or coping with things or have overcome or not overcome something. I don't like the, the term overcome because, like we discussed, that you're always going. It's always there. Yeah. It's always in the background. Um, and you replied on Twitter and said, "I'd love to come on and talk about eating disorders because." Not something a lot of people talk about you don't see a lot of people and you i believe at the time you said you'd spoken about it on the bbc yeah so because i've been an ambassador with beat so beat is the uk's leading eating disorder charity yeah. and i've been an ambassador with them since 2017 so i've done various bits of media so i've done bbc and itv a few segments with them yeah. uh, i made a short film as well with the charity fixers a few years ago okay so i i've, I've dabbled <laughs> you've dabbled dabbled at the media yeah. uh and, and what made you what made you see what did you want to do what why were you talking about it a bit more openly than obviously a lot of people find these subjects very taboo so what made you reach out to those kind of organizations there are so so many reasons that it's just kind of flooding to my head to try and figure out which one to say first um, <laughs> so you know I'd, I'd suffered with anorexia since i was a teenager yeah. And I remember feeling like I was abnormal in that I had an eating disorder, but I wasn't doing it in a pursuit of beauty. And I assumed that's what everyone else with eating disorders did. Yeah. And then I remember saying my parents drove me to hospital, um, a psychiatric hospital on my 17th birthday. And I remember saying to them, I'm going to be the only one who's not doing it to be pretty. And I could not have been more wrong. So, you know, okay. I was living, I was living with an eating disorder and I had so little knowledge about it myself. Yeah. Even though, you know, over the months preceding that I had been doing so much research into eating disorders to convince myself I didn't have one. Um, right. Yeah. But I really learned so much about it from my fellow patients yes you know i was in hospital for um other issues as well as my eating disorder and i had quite a grasp and quite an insight into my ocd um, yeah. and the subsequent depression that came with that but yeah the eating disorder side of things was i had no idea so and then as the years went on it really developed in different ways and it took different forms mm. and i started my recovery when I was 21 yeah and one of the things that kept me on the straight and narrow if you will was the idea of helping other people who have been through it whether that be people with the illnesses themselves or the loved ones of those yeah and also I'd faced so much adversity and people not understanding and the amount of people putting their foot in it when they were talking to me 
Yes. That I and it's so distressing that I didn't want other people to have those experiences. And so I didn't want my troubles to have happened in vain, if that makes sense. No, that makes so absolute sense. I took it to working with well, to start with with B once I was well enough to do so. And even when I've gone through rougher patches in my recovery, because let's be honest, it's never just like a nice straight line. Um, I've got that. I've got that incentive. Yeah. Because campaigning means so much to me that I have to be well to do it. Yes. So if recovery is feeling harder sometimes, which it does. Yeah, it's nice to have an extra reason that's also not just based on myself because yeah. sometimes in recovery you have to be selfish you do have to do it for yourself but to do it for others whether it be directly for your family or friends to do it for a wider good is mm. a really good motivation for me i think it's a good i think it, it, you either have to do it so i read a thing where it said you either have to survive for you or survive for yourself and those are the only things you can't do it. Uh, sorry, survive for you or survive for someone else because you can't mm. do it for surviving for an organization or surviving for a, for the, a thing you're going to buy or a holiday you're going to go on. It's always surviving for you living or it's absolutely the same thing to survive for someone else. A lot of people, like parents, have got through suicidal mm. tendencies for their kids and they've got through a lot of different things kids so you made a good point back there is that you went in think saying that you're the only person doing this because you're not pretty you were the only person with a uh, because you're not not pretty not because you're not pretty that's not what i mean because you're not trying to be pretty and mm. um you were wrong about that so the uh the because i think the media portrays eating disorders as only like that's where you get that impression from is only people trying to be thin the way they look so what would yes. you say why why do you think it happened we dive straight in here i wasn't expecting us to get straight to the core but <laughs> what would you say was the main reason for you um primarily because i i mean i was always an anxious child um as we just discussed before we started yeah. um i was diagnosed with adhd last year but adhd is something you grow up with it's not something you develop as a teenager or an adult it's always there because it's just the way your brain is yes um so the way i described it the other day was that i was high achieving but chaotic high achieving in, but chaotic yeah. yeah so you know i did really well in school in primary school and i loved school and i loved to learn um but something was in retrospect was amiss and i was always a very anxious kid and then when I was 11, we moved to a new area. I went to a school where I didn't know anyone and I was bullied and I developed OCD. Um, and between the ages of 12 and 15, the OCD got increasingly severe to the yeah. point where it absolutely controlled my life. All of my life was compulsions. So I was just performing rituals for hours at a time mm. um, up to, at my worst, probably about 12 hours a day I spent doing rituals and over had um big fears about contamination and another weird this is going to sound weird and i wrote about this when i talked about ocd induced psychosis no in that i had to keep the world in balance right i didn't have a specific motivation for my rituals and compulsions but 
it was very unsafe to not do them. Right. And yeah. it was a big responsibility. And having that overtake my life, I realized over time that I started controlling what I ate and my weight. And it wasn't a matter of I want to be thinner in order to look a certain way. If anything, I wanted to look horrific. I wanted to look so ill as proof that I was doing my eating disorder well, because my eating disorder was something to achieve. Weight loss was something to achieve. The way I'd achieved academically when I was younger and stopped achieving because of my mental health, I could control things and I could achieve things through anorexia. Mm. So it was more about, it was definitely about 100% a control issue. I think it's always a control issue. And, but for you, it was a ritual. So that, I think, see, that's a very good point because again, people don't see that aspect of it. They just see the, oh, I'm trying to get into a dress. I'm trying to look like Brad Pitt. I'm trying to do, and, 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 and you know, now we're discovering more and more because obviously in the past when we were, I don't know, I, I, I say we, but I don't, I think you, I'm 10 years older than you at least. But I, I, when in the past, in the 80s and 90s, it was very much um, women got bulimia and anorexia. And now we're seeing mm -hmm. that it's much more evenly spread. Um, but it's it very much a control thing. And someone's just made a good point in the chat. Um, uh, Clara said that uh, she's a binge eater, which I think is probably the opposite of control. And actually overeating is a uh, an eating disorder as much as undereating. And people don't talk about that at all. Uh, Absolutely. So last, last week was Eating Disorders Awareness Week. And the theme for it was actually binge eating disorder. Right. And so I know a few statistics on binge eating disorder it was only um put in the dsm in 2013 and before then yeah so it's really at least the terminology is recent the condition isn't recent no. um and before then it was bracketed with eating disorder not otherwise specified which is basically if you don't have anorexia or bulimia you have eating disorder not otherwise specified so yeah that was from 1994 so it started being recognized in 1994. It wasn't its own diagnosis till 2013. So it took nearly 20 years. Yeah. But um, binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder diagnosis and the least talked about. So anorexia accounts for eight to 10% of people right. with eating disorders. Eight Bulimia to 10. is a, eight to 10, that's it. Bulimia yeah. is about 40% and is also hugely misunderstood as to what bulimia actually is um but yeah bed is about 50 percent of all people with eds so it, so an eating 50 percent. so we're talking about the other side of the spectrum because obviously when someone says eating disorder you think bulimia you think anorexia um what someone else has made steve has made a good point in the chat that you, it's obviously it's conflated with uh body dysmorphia all the time mm -hmm. rather than control and you're saying 50 percent binge eating disorder is yeah that's and a crazy statistic to me. i want to really stress that um bin or binge eating is the main characteristic of bulimia um right whereas people think purging is what characterizes bulimia and it's not the main thing is the binge eating yeah. and the compensatory behaviors that come with that but as someone who had a primarily restrictive eating disorder i went through a binge and restrict cycle as well right um and that really isn't talked about. You know, I spent years in and out of intensive treatment in hospitals and day patient with other people with eating disorders and binge eating was so taboo. So maybe I was the only one 
in those groups to have experienced it but I highly doubt it I think everyone was just too ashamed to admit to it because with diet culture as well and in you know in our country diet culture um wreaks havoc uh through everyone um binge eating is associated with like a lack of control Mm. or greediness and it's so much there are so many aspects to binge eating and for me personally part of it it wasn't it felt like a lack of control but in a way I was still controlling something because I was controlling what was going into my body yeah and I was controlling it in a way that I was trying to harm myself I my binge eating was self-harm because I knew how physically and mentally how awful I would feel afterwards Mm. and I'm sure you know there are going to be people who hear this and relate and think you know maybe they are just greedy or lazy but there are so there's so much to BED that isn't discussed because of fat phobia and yeah yeah, because of the shame around oh well you shouldn't eat more than you need to well yeah and you Um, shouldn't eat this or you shouldn't eat that or this will make you look a certain way or and how you appear like i I know that um so i was an overeater i was i I recently took control of that but i was an overeater and um i got to 26 stone i got to to quite big and it was um it was about it was about eating instead of feeling so i if it i could instead of like feeling sad i'd go and eat because it was easier because it was i couldn't i couldn't control the sadness but i could eat a packet of, like a packet of biscuits or whatever you know like a, i could just go crazy. it's a distraction and it can also you can feel if you feel apathetic if you feel metaphorically empty if you feel like yeah. there is a void within you whether that be literally from restriction um or yeah figuratively you can fill it with food temporarily mm. and mm. i relate to i totally relate to that and I thought, yeah. you know, I, I don't restrict anymore and I don't binge anymore, but I am prone to comfort eating. Yes. And if I'm, which is a real battle in my head. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not like my, the anorexia in me has completely gone. Um, so sometimes it's like, oh, I want to eat all of this stuff to, because I'm sad. Yeah. But then the other part of me is just like, don't be ridiculous. Don't be disgusting. Have some control. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of contradictive, really. So well, let's look. Let's that was that was. Let's see what you did. What did you do? How did you take? You said twenty-one years old. I don't. How long ago was that? If you don't mind me asking. Um, if, if you do, it tell will me. be seven years this year. Seven years. Seven years so, hey, I was exactly. right. We're ten years <laughs> between. I was like, bang on, <laughs> bang on. So tell me, what seven years? Great, fantastic. Near enough. Yeah. What did you What did you do? What was the thing? What was the turning point and what have you done to work on that? Um, I think there were a lot of mini moments before the actual change. Um, So, like I said, I went into hospital when I was 17 on my birthday and um, was in for five months. Right. And then I had a brief stint in a different hospital just before I turned 18. And then when I was... 20 I started I did a very brief stint in an eating disorder day patient program 
And I think I might have done two days before saying I'm not doing this because I don't want to recover. And then a few months after, so in 2013, I went back into hospital specifically for my eating disorder. I was there for six months that time, yeah. came out, did day patient again, left day patient, relapsed, went back to day patient. Um, so, and I was, yeah, basically bumping around between different therapists and different psychiatrists, and different forms of treatment and whether or not you know, it's really hard to get eating disorder treatment as well. You really have to be very underweight for starters, which is ridiculous. Because like we said, if the minority of people with eating disorders have anorexia, and yet in order to get eating disorder, eating disorder treatment, you need to be underweight. That doesn't add up, but that's sadly how it is and still is now. Um, you really have to jump through hoops to get treatment. And then, you know, in my experience, I didn't want treatment by the time they were offering it to me. No. Um, because my eating disorder is such a big part of my life. Um, but so I was in, I was in day patient and again, again, by this point, and I, you know, I had a partner at the time and he basically said, I can't deal with you and your eating disorder anymore. I don't know who you are anymore because it did encompass my whole personality yeah. and my whole identity. Yeah. And a combination of that. And then also feeling my body was not, handling things as well as it once did because you know the longer you put this stress on your body the more frail you're going to become yeah yeah you know I was was 21 but I was weak and my all I thought about was either food or what I could do to compensate for what I would (laughs) eat and it was it was just so overwhelming and I think after that amount of time I was like I can't handle this anymore I don't want to live like this anymore but I also don't know how to change yeah and it was such it was a terrifying thought because like I said I relied on my eating disorder to form my personality almost I was so scared that if I didn't have my eating disorder um that I would be a shell basically yeah yeah um and I couldn't have been more wrong because I was the shell when I was unwell because it becomes the it becomes you yeah and you know over the last (coughs) nearly seven years well six and a half at the moment i think um i have filled back what i thought was what was i've developed who i am i kind of i was kind of in a way stunted as a teenager when i became unwell and all they're such formative years as well and i kind of skipped that so was in my 20s that I started figuring out who I was and realizing there was more to me than mental illness Mm. as well um it was I mean it was a big challenge I like I I was underweight and I was physically unwell and I did have to have you know physical observations done on a regular basis um but I also I remember before I started refeeding of my own decision rather than being forced to in treatment. I did so much research into how are you meant to recover? What are you yeah. supposed to eat? Because I'm so detached from what regular eating, intuitive eating was. Yeah. That I did, genuinely didn't know what I was supposed to eat and how much. And I remember asking a dietitian and she gave me a ridiculous answer that even I knew was far too little food. 
Um, I think I shout. I've shouted at a lot of dietitians in my time. <laughs> <laughs> no, is there any? Is there any pleasant dietitians? If you're a pleasant dietitian, please do get in touch with the show. But I haven't. I haven't experienced. <laughs> I've, I've had experience with one dietitian I got on with, and she was really knowledgeable and on the ball. But a lot of dietitians don't train specifically in eating disorders, and therefore don't know a lot about them and how to tackle that relationship yeah. that a patient would have with food and I know someone who you know spoke to a doctor about having binge eating disorder and they were just like you're eating too much it's like yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. kind of what I'm here to talk about cool. and you know, the solution <laughs> for a lot of people when they ask for treatment for BED is oh just diet and exercise yeah yeah we talked like, about this just really before not, there's really not getting to the root of the issue no eating disorder no have so many layers and finding that core issue for some it might be childhood trauma um it could be grief it could yeah. be substance issues there are so many things that can lend to the development of an eating disorder and i think it's really important to mention um a predisposition as well because right. you could have two people even siblings, even with a predisposition, one with a predisposition, one with not, they have the same upbringing, yeah, um, yeah. and potentially the same traumas, but only one of them develops the eating disorder. The other one may develop other unhealthy coping mechanisms, yeah. Um, but if you have a predisposition for an eating disorder, plus a trigger, plus diet culture, it's a pretty bleak outlook, and that was definitely me. Well, yeah. Yeah, and people don't see the thing is people think of the um, the eating disorder as the as the problem rather than a symptom of the problem. And Absolutely. I think uh, well, that's what doctors do is they often say, like you say, you go to a dietitian with an eating disorder. That's not really what's supposed to. They're not. That's not what they're there for. They're not. They're not for that. They're there to sure. I, I'm not really sure what dietitians are for when it comes to that. But I was taken to one when I was 13 because I was overweight. And that set a precedent for like being 13 and being told you have to eat brown bread and brown rice. And I was like, I don't know if that's why I'm eating a packet of burgers at a time. I think it's, it's probably not going to change if you get it. But again, it's a thing we, we focused on. It. So that was what happened. That was the moment you went to see people. They weren't very helpful. You've obviously made a decision. What were the things that you, you said to, you learned to eat properly, but what did you... What did you do? What are the little things you did? Because I, I always find it's the small things that people did. For me, it was running, for example, that really helped. Well, I definitely couldn't do that. Because... <laughs> no, well, no, but it was the mentality of it. It was just the yeah. not um, a big, long race, but getting one step at a time. Yeah, it really was. It really was a matter of doing little things. And for some, it may be helpful to have a long-term goal, but that wasn't something that was effective for me. No. Um, so I needed to focus on the small things, partially because I didn't know what my long-term goals were. Um, and I suppose a lot of people around the age of 21, 22 don't know what their long-term goals are. No. Um, so yeah, like I said, it was very much the small things, um, even if it just be a matter of, I want to eat this particular food again. I miss this food. I want to put that in, you know, as maybe like a little goalpost. Um, so, it, yeah, it was small things. And then every so often there'd be like a bigger gesture um, yeah. a, or a bigger milestone, like 
it might not sound big depending on the context but the time I decided I was not having skimmed milk anymore <laughs> and right, I ceremoniously okay. poured it down the sink <laughs> and um have not oh, had it since Ceremony, <laughs> what, but did you replace it with whole milk or did you did you I went to semi-skimmed milk I've also because my eating disorder really kind of messed with my um digestive system but I can't really eat dairy anymore anyway um right. and that's something that is kind of bleak to me because it's just like when I wasn't eating properly my body was very unhappy now yes. I do eat properly and my body's still not that happy because it, <laughs> you know there's very little I can eat without it playing up but I also can't pander to that restriction because otherwise it would appease the eating disorder so it's a real balancing act yeah of yeah. I'm gonna eat this and I'm gonna be in pain afterwards but that's preferable to having to restrict my diet so much again yeah um that's very common as well i know so many people have been through eating disorders and recovery who have then gone on to have digestive problems um well you haven't so, taught your body have you you have to teach your body people yeah. don't realize that what you do in when you're younger affects the development later and you can teach your body just to not know how to deal with it, it just doesn't know how to deal with it yeah. development is a good thing to bring up actually as well because you know most people um who develop e eating disorders do so in their teen years um yeah. much like i did um and if it goes untreated um and it goes into adulthood mm. there's also that fundamental development that most healthy teenagers go through to go from being a child into an adult and if you're development is interrupted by malnutrition um you kind of have to your adult body develops in your 20s or later um yeah. when your peers have all been they, they've done that been there done yeah. that um yeah. and it's really it really contributes to that unstable body image yes because for me i even now um i'm just like my don't I have my pre-eating disorder body? And the reason I don't have my pre-eating disorder body in recovery is because I was a child then. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and how many people have the same body at 28 as they did at 14? No. It and it's just it's natural, and that's something I've really had to come to terms with. Um, and speaking of, you know, I know someone mentioned body dysmorphia. I think yes. we need to say that not everyone with body dysmorphia has an eating disorder and not everyone with an eating disorder has body dysmorphia no. um and because body dysmorphia is, really is its own illness with its own symptoms yeah. um of course there is a lot of overlap and i struggle with unstable self-image because of my eating disorder and because of my bpd mm. um so there can be there is a you know a relationship between yeah. those things but BD, bdd is um an anxiety disorder related to OCD. Right, right. Is it what I didn't know? Body dysmorphia disorder is is related to OCD. Yeah, I didn't know. It that. has a lot of, because a lot of um, people with BDD form such compulsive rituals, but around yeah. their appearance. Yeah, um, and that can translate into eating and their weight as well, of course. Um, but for example, I I don't have BDD, but I have trichotillomania. So I've pulled my hair out since I was a kid. Um, and when, you know, in the worst times, I've had big bald patches and everything. And that's a very common symptom 
with BDD, along with dermatillomania, which is skin picking, and then obviously nail biting is a very common um, yeah. thing associated with anxiety, but also boredom. It's, you know, yes. nail biting is very normal, um, for lack of a better word. But yeah, they're all body focused repetitive behaviors, which are then associated with BDD. And yeah, it's that same compulsion you get with OCD, just focused on the body. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I wouldn't have even, without you pointing out the connection, I would now, now you've pointed out, I see what you mean, but I wouldn't have even made the connection with it, you know, because, because of the way mm. I, I've, it's how, I, 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 because of the way I've been conditioned through society that I, I don't really see them as being the same issues, but yeah, you make a very valid point. And I think that people who have those things would now be able to, because it must be easier to find therapy for OCD than it would be for body dysmorphia disorder, for example. It would just, is that the case or is that, I'd assume it was the case. But. I've not had successful treatment for OCD. Um, it was my primary diagnosis. It's what triggered my problems with my eating disorder amongst other things. And um, it was very distressing and time consuming. Um, but in saying that my OCD is mild now, hasn't been through treatment um, and therapy, it's been through medication yeah. and my brain basically taking its foot off the pedal a bit and just, it's just naturally muted over time right. with my medication. Um, with OCD, you're pretty much guaranteed to be prescribed cognitive behavioral therapy um and my well of all the people i've known being treated for mental health um at least with the nhs cbt is the answer to everything because it's the it's the cheapest fix all approach yes but from my experience cbt could be effective or could be more effective if introduced earlier yeah. Whereas for me, you know, by the time my parents realized my OCD wasn't just me being annoying around the house. Yeah. By the time I was, you know, with CAMS when I was 16, by that point, CBT was not the answer for me because no. it's very behavior focused. It's in the name and it's very much change your behavior rather than why, where has this behavior come from and what does it relate to? Yeah. Um, and also, yeah. The idea of the same for I had for my eating disorder, the same for my OCD, it was to give up those behaviours was terrifying because yeah. they kept me safe. Yeah. And they kept the world safe. Because in doing all of my rituals, I prevented bad things from happening. And well, I, I don't want to go in I I, I wouldn't well, I was just about to say, and what were those bad things? But you know, I I don't wanna go into those unless you want to and there wasn't anything specific um for me some people do have specific things like they need to prevent a loved one from dying by doing yeah. these very unrelated rituals whereas for me it was just i don't know why i have to but i do and i can't risk not doing them and then it got to a point when I was, just before I turned 18 and I was in college, um, 
a classmate of mine who I'd never spoken to, but she was in one of my classes, she got killed in a road traffic accident and she was 16. Yeah. Um, and this was, you know, I'd been in hospital at that point. So, and my OCD was still bad. My eating was somewhat under control at that point. But yeah, the OCD was still severe. And I felt by having not died by suicide or by my eating disorder, mm. I had ruined the balance of the world and she died in my place. Um, so putting yourself at 16. Well, yeah, that that resulted in another hospital admission because I felt like in order to avenge her death i then had to die um it's all very dark and this you know this was 10 years ago last month um which prompted me to write about the ocd induced psychosis because of the delusions i was experiencing relating to my ocd and having thrown out the balance of the world and it sounds it's very much delusions of grandeur almost it's just like my little existence threw the world out of balance it's that you know i say it now and it sounds ridiculous but it was so real at the time well yeah of course it was because you're it's a delusion isn't it it's part of and we we haven't talked about it you've you've mentioned it a couple of times we but we discussed before we started the show that you also have like we said ocd but adhd and Mm -hmm. bpd borderline personality disorder and perhaps there we we were talking about how they're probably all overlapping as well yeah and so there's a delusion there which will come from things like the BPD and then that'll overlap with the OCD with the need for the ritual and then that beca- and then the eating disorder becomes a syndrome of that and I don't think anyone I think we're only just starting to realize how you can have a layered mental health disorder you know like it's a yeah different... they are so I, th- I was going to say so often interlinked but I think they are always always there's yeah. always some crossover and mine were so braided together, um, yeah. especially at that point 10 years ago. Um, also because it wasn't just my eating disorder that was my identity. BPD has, you know, one of the symptoms of BPD is a lack of sense of self and struggles yeah. with identity. So the BPD and the eating disorder and the OCD were all who I was. Yes. Um, and they were... They made me who I was. They made me what, in my head, I wanted to be individual. Which, you know, hindsight, not really. They're pretty commonly comorbid, those three. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> they didn't That's... make me special. But I think where earlier I talked about being a high achiever when I was a kid, I mm. started wanting to be a high... I ended up being a high achiever in mental illness. And um, <laughs> my psychiatrist on my second hospital admission said you've become an expert at being mentally ill because I didn't know anything else I had so much insight but the insight didn't lend itself to recovery Um, insight can be really damning in that way like on one hand some people may not know how unwell they are but people around me found my insight almost annoying like how can you know all of this stuff about your illness and still not change yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I, I'm I'm just like a bit overwhelmed because that's that's why I've got the same problem. Is that yeah. I can I I can because I've had it for so long. 
you walk into a therapist and often they don't know what they're talking about because therapists are often they're often just therapists they 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 go back to they're not a psychologist they're not a psychotherapist they're not a uh, they're not a doctor they're a nurse who's been trained in cbt or or something like that and then they report back to a medic or a psychologist and i have been told that i have got i i just have to walk in and go we need to do this 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 and this we're starting at this point it's been a couple of years and now i don't i haven't needed therapy but now i do and it's crazy to go into like i've just just you saying it i'm like i've had that exact thing happen where they're like you know why how can you know so much about your mental health but not be able to overcome it and you're like because knowing about a thing doesn't mean i know a phone i don't know how to fix a phone i can use it yeah, but exactly. i can't i could show something my mom had to sub email it doesn't mean i know how that <laughs> works but... yeah but that, when i think too deeply about technology it scares me even though i use it every day it's just like oh let's not think too deeply about it because how on earth does that work like how does a cd even work and we've moved on from that <laughs> it's too late. I can tell you, no, I don't want to do that. That's what I'm joking. Um, but uh, it, but the, it, but it's crazy because you become an expert, like you were saying, and then it almost becomes harder and harder to to help you because you're convincing mm. yourself out of the diagnosis, right? Or you're convincing yeah. you can find yourself it's a way around the therapy. Even like having that insight and obsessing over your diagnoses—that's a new neuroticism. Yes, because it's just an extra thing to be obsessed with, especially yes. as someone with OCD. Um, that kind of lent itself to my attachment to my my diagnoses. I think. Right, right. What just helped it get worse, or helped it? Yeah, become another yeah, thing. I've put so much time and energy into thinking about my mental health problems and researching my mental health problems, like because when I was diagnosed with BPD 10 years ago, I'd never heard of it. Yes. Um, and initially ignored it. Then when I started researching it, it was like, oh my God, I became a little <laughs> bit hyper-focused on it. Um, and then more recently, I, although I was diagnosed with ADHD last summer, officially, right. yep. you know, it's, it's a long process to get the diagnosis. Um, and it started with a friend of mine with ADHD saying, I think you've got ADHD because it's not something you necessarily think because it's another thing. It's another disorder or condition that is misunderstood. Yes. Um, I didn't think for myself, that's what I have. I just thought I was, you know, incapable of a lot of yeah. stuff. Um, but that the same thing happened when my friend says, I think you have ADHD because the research started and the obsession started yeah. into have I've got an explanation for this, but I still can't fix it with my insight. No. Um, and then in the diagnostic process, pretty much every doctor or um, or anyone I spoke to in the various assessments I had, it was all just, what's your mental health history? I'm just like, well, this is going to take a while. Can we focus on this ADHD thing? Yeah. And I remember one doctor said, surely they would have picked up on it in hospital. It was like they weren't really focusing on it back then. It was the whole making me eat and stay alive thing. Yeah. Um, also, ADHD isn't a mental illness. No. It's neurodivergence. Um, it's your brain 
working in a slightly different way to a neurotypical person. Yeah. Um, so it's not necessarily something psychiatrists or therapists are that clued up about because it's not technically in their realm of expertise. Well, it's not a problem. So that's the thing is it's not with, with something like bipolar, it's an imbalance with something like um, an eating disorder. There's a core issue that led to that eating um, disorder. But with ADHD, it's a neurodivergence so it's just your brain's way it's like being left-handed or having green eyes it's just a genetic build that's how you're built and you can't fix it there's no like tablet they can give you they've tried and they just you know all it does is it makes your brain do different things but they can't, I don't, don't never... like it all completely because that's my <laughs> i'm working with a nurse to um go on to try medication right um, okay which i'm not you know i'm all, i'm medicated for my mental health issues anyway and i'm no adhd meds you know they vary because most of them are stimulants yes um which confuses a lot of people because they think aren't you hyperactive why would you want a stimulant and it's not yeah. again that's not how it works um oh, and honestly i'm still learning very much about adhd mm. and my own brain so i don't know all of the science behind it um but i felt although we say adhd isn't the problem necessarily it feels like one it's yeah it's, um, and it, i feel very, very restrained by it yeah. um and when i first learned i might have it at first though it was such a relief because like i said there was an explanation for all of my pitfalls and then after a while it was like oh this is something i've got for the rest of my life and i've yeah. got to navigate everything with adhd in my head and yeah. you know i like i mentioned before i was academically successful as a kid then as a teenager i got unwell and stopped achieving academically and now i'm looking to finally go back to education um yes to do mental health nursing and specializing in eating disorders um and in um, lgbtq plus patients that's kind of where i want to specialize um and the, I've, I've got to go back to education with ADHD, but also I've got a house, I've got a mortgage, I've got a yeah. dog, I've got to earn money, I've got to pay bills. So it's yeah. so much more of a woman than being in education as a child because I've got yeah. this whole world of responsibilities yeah. on top of the idea of going into education again and first going to college and then going to uni. And I thought, I'm barely make, scraping by as it is now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How on earth am I going to handle all of this plus education? And I felt like such a failure. I've already failed my eating disorder by being in recovery. <laughs> um, I need to at least achieve academically to prove that I'm worth something. But can I do that with my current brain? Because it feels impossible. So if medication could potentially, it's like a walking aid. Yeah. A mental walking aid, it wouldn't change it. It would just, hopefully, if if I get on with it, which not everyone else does, um, if I get on with medication, yeah, it would be like my mental walking stick. Yes. And <laughs> see, that's what I was meaning is, um, it, it is a problem. It's just going back to what I was saying. It's not like a pro like you can't fix it with a, like a, a, a pill, uh, but you can mm. take medication to control it it's not like you know I feel like it, things. It'll, hopefully the way i see it is 
takes the edge off a bit. That's that's it. I think of it as helping to deal. It, what it does is it's like a guide to this world because this world yeah. is a neurotypical world and everything in it is neurotypical. It, that mm. is a neurodivergence and the world is just not designed for it. But the medication they give you helps you deal with a mm -hmm. neurotypical world rather than it yeah. trying to correct a problem it's trying to focus you towards a particular way of of behaving that helps you you know that's that's yeah, why making I think... basic tasks a bit more accessible manageable yeah while everything yeah. is flashing around you and, and like you say those responsibilities and existing within a world where you've got you you want to have achievements you want to have pets you want to have a day-to-day -day life that's fairly normal with, with regards to everything else and so yeah me medication on, on an adhd level is is for that is for helping you focus on those things and taking away yeah. the noise a bit taking away that, oh, that's such a good way of putting it the way i kind of describe my brain especially if i'm um overstimulated um with sound especially um mm. my brain feels like a scribble Right, yes. Um, White noise is why I call it snow. Yeah, and I'm hoping medication will maybe turn that scribble more into like a ball of wool rather than a knot. Yeah. Um but yeah. we you know, I there's no way of me knowing if medication and which medication will or will not help me. Um it's kind of a very daunting process, to be honest. I am nervous about it. Um well especially because um and this has been a concern throughout all of my assessments um, in being diagnosed. A lot of ADHD medications can cause um, a loss of appetite. Right. And that could be a bit of a wedge in my recovery. Mm. Because even if I don't consciously restrict my diet, if I do start eating less and if I do possibly lose weight, although I don't weigh myself anymore, that can get that little voice going again yeah because I'm like oh we're eating less let's continue doing this let's turn it into a competition with ourselves let's take this weight gain just a little bit further and it never is just a little bit that is the horrible thing about eating disorders because you can tell yourself I'm just going to do it until x weight for example yeah um then you get there and you think oh you have a brief moment of elation where you've achieved it and you've got to your goal weight like as, as an example then you're going to want to chase that again yeah so if medication gets in the way of my eating disorder recovery i will go without because my eating disorder recovery is more important to me than my adhd being treated because ADHD is hard and it affects my mental health, but it doesn't affect me the way an eating disorder can. It's and not, not going to you, know, is it, there and then? No, anorexia has the highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses. And now this far along in my recovery, I can't think of anything worse than being like that again. Mm. Um, yeah, it doesn't absolutely. feel like me. Um, no. My dad called me yesterday because he... So I put out two episodes of my podcast, so for my eating disorder recovery podcast, and my dad called to talk about it, having listened to them. Um, and I said to him, when I'm talking about it, I do feel like I'm talking about someone else just because I'm so far removed from it, yeah. even though it's obviously me. And obviously I can talk about it to death because I'm doing it here. I'm doing it on the podcast, I'm doing it on my blog. 
it still doesn't feel like I'm talking about me because it was like a whole other entity who went through that. Yeah. Um, and my dad said, as someone who witnessed it, it's the same. Like that was a whole different person that he knew back then compared to yeah. who I am now. Um, and I really don't want to be her again. <laughs> no, no. I've said similar about slipping back into bipolar untreated when and we were talking about it before you're not you know you feel like you're broken and you're still building yourself you know people think that they come out fully formed and whatever happens in those bad times is is like breaking apart and coming together when actually you're still be, being built you're going to be a very different person now than you were 10 years ago but also i think one of the things that happens is we disassociate from those things and when you mm -hmm. at, at the time and when you disassociate from them your brain is almost not recording them because it's just trying to do the rituals just trying to do the things and it's not remembering them like I, i'm asked mm -hmm. I, I was a stand-up comedian and I, and I was always asked to write jokes about anecdotes and i didn't have that many anecdotes because my brain had just yeah i don't need mm. that that's not information i can keep yeah so. i can remember some really awful things happening um at my own hand and I can kind of visualize it, but it's still really, really separate. It's yeah. kind of, yeah, it's like I'm recounting someone else's experience. Yeah, it's even like a though... film you watched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, yeah, like I said, it's so alien now that I've come this far in my recovery. That's not to say in the last six and a half, seven years, I haven't had lapses because there have been times when I have, resorted back to some of my old restrictive behaviors or my OCD has gotten a little bit worse again or I've been my mood has been more unstable um but it's never gone back to the extent it was before I started my eating disorder recovery and got on the right medication on a regular basis yeah. um I'm such a huge advocate for medication um I know it's not for everyone some people get horrible side effects um some people want to maybe they'll take it for a bit and then see how they can manage without it that's not me I cannot do that if I come off of my medications I I won't stay well um and I know this is medication I'm going to have to take probably forever yes um and you know I've had I had a doctor in the past when I had a medication review he said oh you're doing well so you should come off your meds why do you think I'm doing well yeah that's the reason because my you know I resisted medication for years because yeah. I was like either I don't want to get better so why would I take meds or if yeah. I'm going to get better I need to do it off my own back yeah so I know the vast difference between me unmedicated and me yeah. when I start taking my medication and there is a direct correlation between me getting on my meds and my eating disorder recovery starting and sustaining. They are directly linked. Um, and I really, that's another stigma that kind of needs um, taking down, I think. Because, yeah. um, well, if, as someone with bipolar, you say it's a chemical thing. Yeah. And the medication treats that chemical. It's no different from having an underactive or an overactive thyroid for example yeah you take the medication um, it's still physical there is yeah. a physical element to it and personality disorders are really taboo bpd is the most known personality disorder it's still got a lot of stigma but at least people kind of know what it is 
Um, and for a long time, people say, oh, you can't treat personality disorders with medication because it's it's almost like it's a fundamental flaw of who you are, not, I don't like not an illness. And I'm over here on my mood stabilizers like, hi, I'm, I'm so much more stable now. Yeah. So I have feel like I'm living proof that you can you can't fix BPD with medication. But it's another thing that the edge has been taken off. I've been leveled out. It's the it's the walking cane. It's the walking stick. Yeah. It's the it's the it's a wheelchair. It's just a dip, the mental version. Now I've been ignoring the chat a little bit because we've been having a good conversation. But I'm just going to tell you what basically I want to say. They've been agreeing with you massively. A lot of people are saying there's a mood right here. You. Uh, lots and lots of people agree with you um but there was a specific question so i apologize if i have been ignoring in the chat but you have all just been agreeing with phoebe so that's uh we, we, we that's great that's where we want to be uh, it's great that you're managing to relate to so many people um the uh it, someone here has asked what are you taking the meds for are they for just the mood or is it for your eating disorder or what do you what is it specific um, for? i feel like they cover all bases to be honest um okay Mental health wise, they my medications don't treat ADHD. Like I said, I'm still um Yeah, yeah I had a recent appointment with an ADHD specialist nurse to discuss that. Yeah. Um but in terms of, you know, my antidepressant and my mood stabilizer, they both attack my three main diagnosed issues. So I feel like I could take one or the other. Yeah. Um, and they would do a bit. But the combination of them helps me to manage all three of my diagnosed disorders. Um, and I don't know necessarily which medication does what to my brain and helps me with what aspect. Um, but my OCD, my BPD and my eating disorder have all been treated by medication. Um, which is good. I think so, that yeah. Like you said, I think there's people that work with medication. There's people that work with therapy. I'm see, I, I have I'm the other way. I I took medication and it numbed me like completely mm. numbed me now bipolar medication and that was back in it was like 2003 at the time bipolar medication they were still like unsure of what they yeah. needed to do it was either like a you were either going straight down and that was it, it was trank or nothing yeah basically and they they gave and i just went numb and it was about two years where i just nothing and i said can't live like this i'd rather the ups and downs so now i manage mm. it with therapy because mm. and, and, and it but it, it's it's taken decades to be able to do that and i it's have to practice, practice in that's, a way. we were talking about masking earlier masking's a big yeah. thing for people like you and me i mean I, I like i'm going through an adhd um diagnosis but it might not be it might just be that, that my bits of my bipolar or i might just be slightly distracted you know it's very hard to know when you're 38 years old but you obviously have had the diagnosis and you know and i i think i know as well that the exhaustion of masking but it just becomes habit it just becomes mm. you're just walking out in the world and you've got that face on and it's it's tough so that and, and that's that's one of the things so you i don't i think that the therapy just taught me how to mask a bit better rather than mm dealing with the issue directly. yeah i mean i definitely masking is something i do spend a lot of energy doing because although it does become automatic it's yeah. still draining oh yeah emotionally um and you know for a while last year i was working in social care with vulnerable teenagers um mm. and although my employers knew bits of my history 
I wasn't meant to let any of the um, residents in the social housing know that I had any of the, the issues they may well have been facing. Yeah. And so it was just an extra, extra thing to mask um, yep. in that I couldn't say if one of them was struggling with self-harm, I couldn't say, I know what how you feel because I've been there. Yeah. I wasn't able to even say anything like that. And that's partially why that job didn't work out for me. No. <laughs> it, was, imagine. it was just an extra level of faking it. Yeah. Um, and I'm so well, honestly, you can tell by this conversation, I'm so open about all of this. Yeah. And it's so important to me to be open, open about this, you know, morally, as well as the fact I don't have the energy to shut up. <laughs> basically. Yeah. yeah. It's so um, hard to to be quiet, but because, and on the same, I, I I went from being not talking about it at all to just like almost immediately. Like if someone, I, sometimes I just say, "Sorry, I'm a bit weird." You won't get it. I'm bipolar. Don't worry about it. And it's just a different way of thinking. But people don't realize how draining it is. For for me, after a like a, after a day of being like trying to be someone else or trying to mask a low mood, because when you're high, for me, it's it's great. You know, you can. You get out there and it's great. But when you're trying to mask a low mood, it's the way I described it to someone was if you've ever cried for two or three hours or shivered. Oh, God, yeah. And or if you've, sh- you've had flu and you've shivered for so long and you get home and it's like your body's a, just a sack and you can't. Yeah. It's, it, but they don't realize that. You, it's very hard to explain when you, they can't physically see anything about you. Yeah. And I didn't really. I spent a long time trying to find the words for that and it turns out the word is burnout and I didn't know you could get burnout from emotions rather than you know overexerting yourself physically Mm. um turns out you know masking some of my um more visible ADHD and mental illness symptoms and like I you know I told you earlier I have tics as well and sometimes I have to really strain my body to not tick it's kind of like if you've got a sneeze brewing and you have to you know stop it that's kind of what it is like to prevent a tick um and so yeah so you know I've only been working until I was furloughed I was working in a cafe you know it wasn't exactly high stakes but there was still an element of masking in that job and I was just so lucky at this particular location that I've got colleagues who are mentally or neurodivergent themselves so luckily i've in this instance i've been able to be like this is where i'm at today yeah i might have i might struggle with this that whereas you know in when i've worked in retail before i've been told by managers you're too obviously depressed (laughs) too obviously depressed can you stop you know can you put on a smile for the customers like (laughs) yeah Jeez. That, talk about 1950s work environments. Yeah. Come on, smile more. Like, leave your depression at home. Love I'd love to, mate. Absolutely love to, so that I could deal with this <laughs> just normally. Yeah. But then right, I can, right. that's how I can oh, sell as many products as possible. As long as I'm smiling, then we can, you know, here we can we can talk about how mental illness and capitalism can collide. But I'm sure we'd be here. Okay. That's such a whole other thing. Someone's laughing in the chat. Like, hide your ent- hide your illness, please. They wouldn't do it to someone in a wheelchair, or they wouldn't be like put. Oh, you know, they uh, might. 
there's been a lot there's a lot of discourse online about you know um from people who have physical disabilities saying can you stop saying that we need to treat mental illnesses like physical illnesses because a lot of us don't get treated yes um appropriately if we are physically ill and especially um people in larger bodies get dismissed from all sorts of terrible physical illnesses and people the doctors will just say lose weight and it will be fixed and that's not how it is so it's yeah we can't say we're not being treated as well as those with physical illnesses because they're also being treated terribly. They're also being mistreated. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're. I. I was being flippant. I apologise for that. But that's you know, it's it's it, when it's a bit when it's more visible. I've always said that I would prefer a big blue lump on the side of my face that glowed when I was sad, just so people were more aware <laughs> of it. But I, I obviously don't mean that. It, it, it's a very. No, no, I know. I just. I, no, I, I know. Just like, being... I can't. I can't shut up. Like I just. <laughs> no, don't apologize for that. Don't say that. Um, but it's, it's absolutely fine. You, 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 that's the whole point of the chat. And also, I'm uh, people are talking as well and saying. So people are saying it's absolutely. You're absolutely right, Phoebe. They don't treat anyone right. That's the problem. Is that no one? <laughs> the, you have to be literally a man and healthy and in your mid 20s if you're none of those things you're not <laughs> you're not allowed to be a, that, that it oh, doesn't there's cater a to you. quote that really alludes to that that's like i'm a male between 25 and 40 everyone takes everything i say seriously or something along those lines yeah yeah well exactly like, yeah pretty yeah. much <laughs> as long as you're healthy that's <laughs> oh god but yeah it's so right so we've come through all that we we know what's You've got these things. You've gone through therapy. You've gone through. Uh, you're going through a diagnosis at the moment for ADHD. We've you've been diagnosed, but you're going through medical. Mm-hmm. You're going to medications. You've obviously um, learning to live with your things. What would you say to people who would ask you? So someone comes to you. They say they've got very similar problems, very similar issues. What would you say to them that might help them? What would be your top advice or or I don't want to say things that seem really small, but that's what worked for me. So that's really all I can advise is that to remember the reasons in those moments where you want to be better, want to get better. Yeah. You've got to hold on to those moments because a lot of, especially with eating disorders, and when you've lived with it for so long, or even it doesn't, you don't have to have lived with it for that long. One of the biggest hurdles in recovery is wanting to change in the first place because your eating disorder serves a purpose. It's not just there. It gives you, it gives you multiple things and it's a coping mechanism, um, which is why it can be so scary. The idea of leaving it behind. And at first you may, you know, 90% of the time you're adamant on remaining unwell with your eating disorder. But if 10% of the time you are, wishing you wishing you could be better hold on to those moments and they will increase um that's a huge thing for me and also believing you are permitted to be better and that you don't deserve to remain unwell it's holding on to those beliefs and developing them um until you've yeah you build that that permission to Mm. be healthier and to look after yourself and the fact that recovery, you don't decide to recover on one occasion. I've been doing this for over six years and I still make that re- recovery decision. Mm. 
multiple times a day. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, making that decision right now is pretty easy, but it's still a decision to be made. And in the earlier stages, when there are so there's so much there's so much you need to do in eating disorder recovery as well because it, how it affects you physically. Um, it can that decision can be really hard to make. Yes. But like I just said, I find that decision quite easy now, and it will get easier, and it might get harder at first. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, recovery is a rough path. Um, but you have to keep remembering that it does get better. I know it doesn't, it sounds so corny and people don't believe it could ever get better. Um, but with every decision you make, every meal, every snack, every time you decide not to overexercise, every time you decide not to binge or restrict and find that middle ground, that's a little closer to it being easier, even if you have to go through the rough a bit first. Um, I can't tell anyone what to eat to recover from their eating disorder. And I can't tell everyone, you should be on this particular medication because it worked for me. Um, it's so individual. Um, and that goes for people with all sorts of mental health problems and neurodivergence. Um, and it is very much a matter of finding who you are and what works for you. And it's kind of an experiment. Um, but it's an experiment to be bright, um, embraced and it can be really interesting um, as well, especially for me. Like I learned that I liked certain foods I hadn't eaten in a long time or um, I ooh, trying to, my mind's gone blank now in a typical ADHD fashion. Um, but yeah, you discover things about yourself and you start filling that void and as you said you about your have, hobbies you've started to enjoy hobbies yeah again. um this is something you know my ADHD has really clouded my ability to enjoy like recreational activities um but you've got capacity to be interested in other things that don't revolve around food and your body and your weight and everyone else's perception of you or um even just you get some amazing firsts in recovery as well. Like okay, I can only speak as someone who's recovered or who's in recovery from anorexia. And I can't say this for everyone of any diagnosis, but having a coffee with that wasn't made with skimmed milk for the first time. How exciting is that? It was so much more delicious. Or like, I remember the first time I had a slice of cake in a cafe ever when I was 21. and I think I cried, but also not with the anxiety at that point, but with the overwhelming joy I got out of it. Um, yeah, the the recovery firsts are amazing, and the first, you know, you can only have your firsts one time. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's true. And so now, sometimes recovery can feel a bit like a long slog. It's like I've done the exciting things, um, and now it's not so exciting. It just feels like a job. Um, which it might it can be sometimes but yeah it gives you that capacity to fill your life with other things and then that's where you realize all that effort was worth doing yes See, that's a nice thing the capacity to do other things and worth doing i love that that's a, what a great message and i think that people forget that that's the next bit 
the next bit is is you little by little just the little one-offs makes it worth it and then yeah. you get there and those are the little victories along the way so where can they find you um phoebe they, we, we've talked about all of these things where can people find yeah. you if they want to hear more from you okay so i've got a relatively um sparse blog at the moment it is um phoebe webb blog so p-h-o-e-b-e-w-e-b-b-b-l-o-g at wordpress.com okay um and then my new eating disorder recovery podcast not about food is available on spotify um apple podcasts and anchor um with because it's new and with the algorithm you may not be able to find it straight away but it is under not about food um on spotify it you should be able to find it if you also put edaw in the search um alternatively i am on twitter um as philo so that's f-e-e-h-l-o and then i've got the link to the podcast in my bio as well and it's the same on instagram so you can uh, see me prattling nonsense on there and also listen to the podcasts and hopefully uh we'll get another episode out this week we did two last week for eating disorders awareness week um and now it's just a matter of finding the right guests and my long-suffering brother having to do all the editing because I have no idea. <laughs> that's fair. That's what I, I, you'd love to. I'd love to have someone to send it over to. And when we do put out, because we're going to put this as a podcast, I'll make sure that all the links are in there as well. So people Great. will be able to just click on things and find awesome. you easily. And if you are watching the show and you want to, and you didn't write that all down, um, I have shared uh, Phoebe's Twitter in my Twitter so that you'll be able to just click on it and go and find all your stuff. Yep. I'm on your way. Instagram as well. And on my Instagram as well, because I am. Um, a social media maniac uh like you yeah. say yeah <laughs> uh right okay thank you very much for, for coming on the show uh phoebe i really appreciate you taking the time to d talk through those very difficult topics to cover and i think we've done you i mean the people in the chat are very uh happy with with you saying how much they relate to what you've been saying so that's lovely so thank you very much for joining us everyone uh, there we'll be back next week uh for another mental health bar uh you've been BB Web, thank you very much for joining us. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I will see everyone on Wednesday. Thank you very much. Awesome.